That's the theme of our fourth Sunday in Advent, and the joy candle is burning on our Advent wreath. And since the angel that appeared to the shepherd to announce the birth of Jesus said, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good noise of great joy. I think we could rightly say that joy is the main theme of the Advent season. The news that Jesus has been born is intended to bring not just a little joy, but great joy. Mega, literally in the Greek, mega joy that Christ has been born. And that news is as fresh today, 2,000 years later, as it was when it was first announced. Because Jesus continues to live. Jesus continues to enter into the hearts of of human beings, bringing with him his life and bringing with him his joy. And that joy should be as great for you and for me this morning as it was 2,000 years ago when the angel first made the announcement. So the question is, how great is your joy? And if your joy isn't very great, how can you make it greater? And if your joy is great already, how can you keep it? See, sometimes joy is a little elusive at Christmas time. In our minds, we come up with what we think will make us really joyful. Some version, our version of the perfect Christmas. But then reality hits. Families have issues. People are selfish. They can't hold their tongues. They have to speak their mind. They have habits that they can't set aside for just one day, and that impacts the celebration of the day. Someone gets sick. Someone's tongue gets stuck to the flagpole. There are some movie watchers out there. Or, or perhaps maybe uh, on a serious note, it's the, the first Christmas that you have to spend without someone that you love. And so joy seems to run and hide. And we call, come out, come out, wherever you are. The day we anticipate will be the most joyful is not. Well, this morning, I hope to bring joy out of hiding. Not just for Christmas Day, but for every day of our lives. To figure out how we can have joy and how we can keep joy and how we can make it mega joy. Because as believers in Christ, we must be joyful people we got to be joyful not only for each other, for our families, but for the world around us. They need joyful people. That's what I want us to talk about this morning as we come once again this week to Romans chapter 15. If you have your Bibles with you, if you'll take them out now. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find Romans 15 on page 949. When you found your place, let's stand together so we might hear read the word of the living God. Romans chapter 15, verse 13, this is the word of the Lord. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Let's pray together. Lord, bless now the reading and the hearing of your word. That's your promise to us. So fulfill your promise. Keep it in us and through us today. As we come to your word, bless it to our understanding. Lord, we want to know you through your word. We want to know your will for our lives through your word. 
And Lord, we want our lives to be transformed through the power of your spirit and by the truth of your word. So do that in us and through us this morning. Lord, we ask, we, we pray that you would make us joyful people. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. you may be seated. This morning, I want us to consider for a few moments uh, complete joy, mega joy. And that kind of joy is found in a combination of two sources. And so this morning, we're going to look at two sources where you and I might find joy and keep it and make it mega joy. As we saw last week when we looked at this same verse and we focused on the hope of it, we, we noted that this is a prayer that the Apostle Paul offers. May the God of hope fill you with all joy. It's a prayer for joy. So when Paul prays and, and he asks for joy, for what is he asking exactly? You, you and I, we might all have different ideas about what joy is. So let's get on the same page with one another. Biblical joy is defined as gladness or great happiness. Now that's probably a given for all of us. When we think of joy, we think of gladness and great happiness. That's what it is. But biblical joy, it's more than that. Biblical joy is more a state of being than it is an emotion. It's more a state of being than an emotion. Joy is a disposition of the entire person. It's your state of mind. It's your character. Biblical joy is also a result of choice. It's a result of choice, and so that puts us in the driver's seat just a little bit when it comes to joy. It isn't something that you and I have to passively or helplessly hope for. Well, I hope I get a little joy somewhere today. No, we are in control more than that. Certainly, spontaneous things happen in your life and mine. Unexpected things come along and they make us happy. They bring us joy. But we're not dependent on those things to make us happy. Neither are we destined to unhappiness when those things don't happen for us. We have a better joy. We have a, a deeper source of joy. And you and I can always go to that source of joy and draw up a big bucket full of it. And so the first source of joy for us this morning is in right believing. Right believing leads to joy. Look again in this verse. Paul prays, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. In believing. Believing is a source of joy for us. Believing what? Believing facts? Absolutely. The true facts are the source of joy for us, and that's why we have to get them correct. I was working on this sermon Thursday in my office. In the afternoon, when a, a tour carriage stopped on the street in front of the sanctuary. Now, I certainly don't want to disparage anyone, but tour guides don't always get the facts straight. They don't even consistently tell the wrong facts in the same way. So first, the guide repeatedly called us the Church of the Divine Redeemer. Fact. 
Our name is Redeemer Presbyterian Church, as the sign on the front of the building clearly indicates. The tour guide then told the story of why the Lutherans who were here before us had to move out. They had to move out because this sanctuary only seats 200 people, and you can't possibly sustain a building like this with 200 people. Fact, the sanctuary seats 400 people. Fact, the Lutherans had only 20 people, and that's why they decided to merge with another church. Then the tour guide said that the Lutherans had to move out because they couldn't pay the mortgage. Fact, since the Lutherans had owned this building since 1866, 140 years, no matter how many times they refinanced, they had no mortgage. Fact, they also had lots and lots and lots of money in the bank, so should they have had a mortgage, they would have been able to pay it. Then the story got interesting. According to the guide, we, that's us, had $800,000 in the bank. But we needed an additional $800,000 to meet the $1.6 million asking price. So guess what? Through the power of social media, she said, people gave and gave and gave. $20 here, $20 there, $10 here, till we raised all the money and bought these buildings. Now, don't get me wrong. I, I like the tour guide story. Because if that story were true, we would be debt-free right now, and I would be a very joyful person. But the facts are, are different. We didn't have $800,000 in the bank. Fact. We borrowed $1.2 and we raised $400,000 through donations and pledges, not through social media. We still owe around $400,000. So if anyone writes to write a check, all right, that is my shameless end-of-the-year giving pitch, and the Lord provided it for me. You think I'm kidding. <laughs> The point is, you can't find real joy in a story that isn't really true. And the facts are all wrong. So let me give you some facts that should you choose to believe them this morning can always bring you joy, no matter what's going on in your life. Paul summarizes the facts this way. 1 Corinthians 15. For I delivered to you as of first importance... What I also received, fact, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, fact, that he was buried, fact, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, fact, that he appeared to Peter, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. I'll add to that the Apostle Paul's words from Romans 8, fact. Jesus Christ is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. I'll add to those words the words of Jesus from Matthew 24. Fact, all the tribes of the earth will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Fact, he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the, earth, to the other. Fact. Therefore, you must also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. 
These are certainly not all the facts, but they are true. And they are of first importance. And they are enough to compel us to choose joy every single day. Enough to make us have a disposition of joy. Enough that should no other joyful thing unexpectedly come into our lives, we would still be joyful because we believe these facts. That Jesus Christ died for our sins, was raised again to life, is now seated at the right hand of God the Father, is praying for us, and is coming again with great power and glory. Is that good news? Does that make you joyful? When we believe, this is our source of joy. And so we must believe. That's what Paul says. When Paul says the word believe here, he means to entrust yourself with complete confidence, to be totally committed to the Christ about whom these facts speak. Belief for Paul is firmness. Belief for Paul is impregnability. Nothing can chip away. Belief is the radical decision of the will to deliver yourself up to the one in whom you believe. If you and I want to experience joy, and not just at Christmas, but every day, you've got to be committed to these truths that Scripture records about Jesus. And you've got to tell yourself this truth every single day. There aren't that many facts that I listed. We remind ourselves of those morning, noon, and night. And no matter what's going on in our lives, we're going to be joyful people. Right believing is a source of joy. But here's the question. Did Jesus intend that our joy be complete? That our joy be mega joy just by believing right facts? Will we ever find complete joy just in believing the right facts? Is that how God has designed us? Or does real joy, mega joy, complete joy come from something more? Before I answer those questions, I want to talk about stereotypes. Stereotypes usually have some basis in truth. They're not randomly concocted, otherwise they would have no meaning. For instance, if West Virginians had historically always worn shoes and historically had all of their teeth, then my wife's joke of 32 years, I married the only man in West Virginia with a full set of teeth and a pair of shoes. See, that wouldn't be funny, right? People wouldn't guffaw at that as they usually do. (laughs) Instead, they would stare at her blankly and say, well, what is that supposed to mean? It's funny because enough people have experienced in some way toothless, shoeless West Virginians. Sorry, Mom. (laughs) The only reason I say that is so that we don't dismiss out of hand as completely inaccurate the stereotype of Presbyterians as the frozen, see, comes from somewhere. Because enough people have experienced not warmth, but coldness from Presbyterians. They've experienced our right beliefs, our correct theology, particularly predestination, not as a beautiful thing, 
but perhaps as a smug thing. Our feelings are frozen, and sometimes so are our actions. We're known for what we believe, but not necessarily for what we feel or for what we do. And I hate to break it to you, but Presbyterians are not generally stereotyped as joyful people. We seem to be satisfied with believing, but leaving off the doing. And I don't believe we'll ever find complete mega joy in that. Of course, we will always be thankful. We'll always be joyful. Whenever we think about the facts of Jesus, who he is, what he has done for us, but that joy will be truncated. It won't be the mega joy that God wants for us unless we add to it a second source of joy. And so in addition to right believing, we also must have right doing in our lives. The source of mega joy comes from right doing. Throughout the Bible, joy is tied to doing. Joy is tied to doing. In the Bible, the experience of joy is closely related to victory over one's enemies. And so David writes in Psalm 27, And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. See, David didn't just think about it. David acted. David thought. David won. And so David rejoiced. In Luke chapter 10, we read about the story where Jesus sent out 72 disciples to do ministry ahead of him. And he sent them out in, in pairs of two. And after their little tour of ministry was over, Scripture says the 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. See, the disciples, all 72 of them, were joyful because of what they had done, what they had done in the name and in the power of Jesus. They had overcome the enemy, sickness, healed, Demons cast out. They were joyful. For Jesus himself, action and joy are tied together. Hebrews 12, verse 2 says, Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. What was the joy set before Jesus? Typically, we imagine that joy to be returning to the Father, going home. Yes, joyful time for Jesus. But he only returned in joy because he returned in victory. His joy came from returning to the Father, having victoriously carried out the will of his Father. Jesus brought good news to the poor. He bound up the brokenhearted. He proclaimed liberty to the captives. He opened the doors of the prisons for the captive. He proclaimed the year of the Lord's favor just as he was supposed to do. That's what made the cross bearable. That's what made the return joyful. We ponder, or we can, what the return of Jesus would have been like if he had failed. If Jesus had called a legion of angels to come and rescue him from the cross, which he was able to do. 
We must assume he would have returned to heaven anyway. He was still sinless. But how would it have impacted his joy? He would still rejoice in the presence of his father. But would that joy be tainted by failing to do what he was sent to do? We cannot begin to answer those questions. And guess what? We don't have to answer them ever because Jesus didn't fail. He perfectly did everything that he was sent to do. But his joy was tied to his doing. And so it is for you and for me. Believing and doing equals joy. Listen to what Jesus said to the disciples. Upper room, last night of his life, the last supper. Truly I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. Whoever believes in me, right believing, will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these he will do. Because I am going to my Father. See? Jesus ties believing and doing. If you believe in him, right believing, you do what he did. Right doing. How does that make you feel, Presbyterians? See, if we hear these words as oppressive or as a guilt trip, we totally miss the point. These words are our ticket to real biblical joy, the kind for which Paul prays. Not a fleeting emotion, but instead a disposition, a state of being, a state of mind, always. These words should incite anticipation within you and me for great joy. I get to do the works that Jesus did. I get to do greater works than Jesus did. And if these works produce joy in Jesus, what do you think they're going to produce in you and me? Without taking time to exegete this interesting verse about greater things, I think Jesus at least is referring here to the spread of the gospel among the Gentiles. He's referring to the gospel going from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the uttermost parts of the world, far greater span than Jesus ever reached during his earthly ministry. I think he's referring to the knowledge of the glory of the Lord covering the earth as waters cover the sea. I think he's talking about the least of these, my brothers. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty. You gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And the righteous will answer, saying, Lord, when did we do these things? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to the least of one of these, my brothers, you did it to me. See, our joy will come from choosing, choosing to act, to do on behalf of others. When we know that because of what we did, someone who is hungry isn't hungry anymore, that brings joy. When we know that because of what we did, a homeless person has a, a warm place to stay, that brings us joy. When we know that because of something we did, an injustice has been made right, 
where someone who has been oppressed isn't oppressed anymore. That brings us joy. When we know that because of something we did, someone who is lonely isn't lonely anymore because we befriended them. That brings us joy. The joy in our heads over right facts and right doctrine isn't the mega joy that the angel announced. It isn't even the joy that Jesus had. Only when our head is joined by our hand will we know mega joy. Joy that won't run and hide when your crazy uncle acts up on Christmas Day. I just finished reading a book entitled Something Needs to Change. It's by David Platt. He's the former president of IMB, International Mission Board. He's the author of the New York Times best-selling book, Radical. Maybe you've read that. And currently, he's pastor of McLean Bible Church in the D.C. area. I want to read a quote from this book. It's a little bit long, but I think you'll like it. Well, you won't like it, but I'm going to read it. He writes, I think about the sermons I've preached about serving those in need. I even think about the books I've written, including Radical for Crying Out Loud, a book about laying down our lives in love for Christ and the world around us. So why has it been rare for me to be so moved by the needs of others that I have fallen on my face before God and wept? I don't think this question is just for me. When I think of all those church services, I recall very few instances when other Christians and I have wept together for people who were missing water, food, family, freedom, or hope. Why is a scene like that so uncommon among us? It makes me wonder if we've lost our capacity to weep. It makes me wonder if we have subtly, dangerously, and almost unknowingly guarded our lives, our families, and even our churches from truly being affected by God's word to us in the world of urgent spiritual and physical need around us. We talk a lot about the need to know what we believe in our heads. Yet I wonder if we have forgotten to feel what we believe in our hearts. How else are we going to explain our ability to sit in services where we sing songs and hear sermons celebrating how Jesus is the hope of the world, yet rarely, if ever, fall on our faces weeping for those who don't have this hope and then take action to make this hope known to them? Why today do we seem to be so far from the way of Jesus? Jesus wept over those in need. He was moved with compassion for the crowds. He lived and loved to bring healing and comfort to the broken. He died for the sins of the world. So why are those of us who carry his spirit not moved and compelled in the same way? Surely, God didn't design the gospel of Jesus to be confined to our minds and our mouths in the church yet disconnected from our emotions and actions in the world. 
surely something needs to change. I want to finish by coming back to Paul's prayer. May the God of hope fill you with all joy. Fill and all. I don't really know what else to say about those two words, except there's nothing partial about either one of them. Full means full, complete, nothing lacking, and all means all. Not in part, but the whole. And this is what's possible for you and for me, to be full of joy, all joy, mega joy. What kind of apostle would Paul be? What kind of shepherd would he be for people's souls if he asked God in prayer for something that God could not do or would not do? How unkind of Paul to, to put before us, to hold out as possible something that is not possible, to make you and me think that, that we could be full of joy, all joy, when he knows the joy is impossible. Paul prays because he knows it is is possible. All joy. Full joy. And so he prays. And the prayer serves as a check for us. When we find an incompleteness in our lives, when it comes to joy, it's time for us to pause and evaluate. Why am I not full of joy? knowing what I know, doing what I do. And so we ask ourselves, are we believing the right things? Has Christ been, quote unquote, born in you? If so, then you should have joy always. Because guess what? He's not going anywhere. Do you believe that? Do you believe Jesus when he says, lo, I am with you always? Do you believe that? Do you believe Jesus when he says, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you? Do you believe that? It's right believing, and it's a source of joy. And it's true until the Lord comes to take you or until the Lord himself returns. And you remember those things, and you can be joyful. Joy comes out of hiding comes out of hiding in the hospital, in the funeral home, in the counselor's office, places you think joy could never be, it's there. Whenever, wherever, you can have joy in knowing Jesus. Secondly, if your joy is not mega, if it seems to be hiding, ask yourself what you're doing with what you believe. Are you doing Jesus things? even greater things. If not, don't be surprised if your joy seems to disappear often or if it's not the mega joy that the angel says should come from Jesus. But if you are, if you are believing, if you are doing, you will have and you will keep joy in your life and it will be mega joy. And so Paul's prayer for the Romans becomes my prayer for you and I hope it is your prayer for me. May the God of hope fill you with all joy. This broken, 
contentious world of victims in which we live needs to see some joy. Do you believe that? Real joy. Jesus' joy. The world needs it. So imagine what your joy, your mega joy, will bring to your world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that because of Jesus, joy is possible. Lord, we can't imagine the world apart from Jesus, apart from the spirit of Jesus indwelling his people. So we thank you for that joy. Lord, we see what the world is and and we know what it could be apart from that joy. So we thank you right now, Lord, for making joy possible. And Paul's prayer becomes my prayer this morning that you would fill each of us with all joy, not partial, but complete. Spirit of God, I pray that you would remind us, all of us here, over and over throughout the day, the true facts of the story of Jesus. What has been and what is to come, Lord, and may that fill us with joy. And Father, give us boldness to get outside of our heads and to actually do something with the truth. Believing rightly means doing rightly. And Lord, we know, we believe that we can make a difference in this place where you've planted us. We can make a difference for Jesus' sake by the things that we do. And so, Lord, I pray that you would compel us to do those things. And that the joy that we have, Lord, would just encourage us to do more and more and more. Thank you, Lord, for the joy that's ours. If, Lord, if there's someone here this morning who doesn't know the joy of Jesus because you've never been born in them, Lord, I pray that this would be the moment for them, Spirit of God, to be at work in their hearts. Open their minds to believe that this story is the true story and it can change their lives forever. Pray for them now. Increase our joy, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.